welcome to Unboxing, Play and Profit for the Gaming Curious. I'm Lane Nooney. I'm Yost Vendrana. And we are here digging deep on why games matter in today's economy. On the docket today, Friday, May 15th, the EU gives the green light to Microsoft's acquisition of Activision, leaving everyone scratching their heads. The new Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom is the fastest selling Zelda yet. And on the back half of the show, we'll be discussing the GQ Greatest Games list. All that and more with your two very clever co-hosts. But first, we've got some catching up to do. Yes, you made it here through the throngs of students in their graduation gowns. Downtown Brooklyn was a mess. It was lots of decked out, dooted up folk celebrating I guess the ceremonial receiving of a diploma. Good yeah. for them. Very excited for all of them. It's interesting to see, like out of nowhere, you just have this hive of people with family members all so excited. They're all so shiny and happy, like so proud. <laughs> yeah, you definitely don't want to go into Washington Square Park during this week. It's no, just no. it's just scores of graduates taking photos of themselves in front of the Washington Arch. It's 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 cute. And also cheesy, but you know, they paid how much for this? Like they should, they should, I think you're right. I was, I was lambasting it earlier, but you're right that they deserve a ceremony for the money that they put in. (laughs) That's the least NYU can do is to give them a bit of a party. Yeah. The undergrads get the Yankee stadium ceremony and then all the schools hold their individual graduation. So that for my department is happening right now at Radio City Music Hall. But I begged off the requirement to go since I just finished the most exhausting class of my life. And I'm starting up summer session next week on Tuesday. So I, I was like, you can't you can't make me go to graduation. I've got too much work to do. That's it, that's it. How did your class wrap up? Pretty well. And most of them showed up for the last class, which is always a bit of a mix of, oh, I'm so busy. So it was overall pretty good. They had, I think I had a fun semester, to be honest. Like I still have to finalize the grading because I'm I'm slow and lazy. But overall, like this was really a very smart batch for me this semester. A lot of creativity in the topics, very adamant, leaning into the conversation. So that was always fun. It makes life easier for me. And there, you know, there's always a row of people at the end of the semester that say, thank you, professor, which I'm not, but I appreciate it. It's a bit of a, it's a moment of insecurity always like, you know, who's going to, give a shit at the end of this like did i make any kind of impact and it's sort of measured by that final response like when they come up and say thank you for the semester or whatever like that always fills me with a sense of like okay so i'm not just doing it for myself (laughs) yeah i got applause at the end of my last lecture which i guess the vibe in a class of 240 Mm. you know when you drop the final lecture because i did a you know, a little kind of five minute speech where I tried to wrap up all the big themes of the class and the Mm. importance of history. And they, they definitely got it. So, you know, that's, that's great. They clapped like a big roaring thunderous. And you've been getting applause around the country. I have. Last week, I launched my book at the Internet Archive in San Francisco. So that was a pretty Fun little experiment. I've never done a book launch before. The staff there are absolutely fantastic. My good friend Jason Scott, who's at the Internet Archive, was a huge help in in getting that lifted off the ground. Awesome. I sold all the books that I brought. And yeah, we had a great conversation. I was joined by a good friend and colleague of mine, Finn Brunton, who's a prof at UC Davis. He did a little Q&A with me at the end. Some original Apple employees showed up, employees number five and 12 
So Whoa. Rod Holt and Dan Kotke came, you know, that was a little intimidating. That's fantastic. It took me a rem- moment to remember who Rod Holt was. He designed the power supply for the Apple II. Because the book in many ways, you know, it's not about Apple's early corporate history. It covers some of the foundation of the company and and particularly Wozniak's design of the Apple II. But it's not focused on, let's say, what happened between the launch of the Apple II and then everything that came next. It moves on to a software story. So, you know, I'm not trying, I wasn't trying to create a a full historical account of the early corporate years, which nobody really has done, mm-hmm. which just seems kind of wild and odd, but that's fantastic. I'm glad to hear that it's got so much response and that there is, you know, that there was an actual book tour. Yes. <laughs> you know, it makes a big difference. Like you've been, you've been penning away this whole time by yourself and then to have other people read and frankly, just give a shit. It's just, it's very encouraging. It's like, okay, it wasn't just for me. Yeah. Some fans of the podcast came who were out on the West coast. That was really sweet. And then afterwards I went out with some of my friends and we all went to the house of prime rib after, which is a wild establishment. What happens there? There's one thing they serve and it's prime rib. Hmm. I think you can also order fish. That might be, there might be some (laughs) like like tilapia (laughs) might be the, if you don't eat red meat, you can have a fish, but otherwise, if you don't eat meat, it's really not the place to go. <laughs> and so the decision that you make is how thick do you want your meat to be, right? There's like four options on the menu for the level of thickness of, really? the, of the beef. And, and you know, of course, you can choose, you know, how well done you want it. And then otherwise, it's like mashed or baked potato, cream corn or cream spinach. <laughs> this is a very modular place. It's yes. nice. It's yeah. every, there's something for everyone as long as it's meat. Yes. But the tea board of steak yeah a very you know unconventional menu in in that sense but they treated us great i had probably what i would say was the best classic old-fashioned i've maybe ever had mm-hmm. old fashions are one of my favorite drinks and it was no bullshit it was there was no flavored syrups or bitters you know it was just like <laughs> this this drink has four ingredients and we're gonna mix them perfectly and and yeah it was it was outstanding I like that. I like it. Sounds also that you know maybe these things tasted so well because it was after, after this. <laughs> I did feel like I had talk. had been shot through a cannon. But man, when I woke up Friday morning, it was like the first time in four months I didn't wake up with a giant knot of stress <laughs> in my back between the class and the book launch and everything else. So that felt really good. I'm, I'm glad to have met you before the fame because <laughs> yeah, the world is put on notice. All right, so on to the news. Yoast seems like the biggest news of last week was the, what I think we could safely say, the surprise decision by the European Union Commission to greenlight Microsoft's proposed acquisition of Activision. It seems like it came as a surprise, given that the UK had put up a big stop sign on this. Can you give me just a broad overview first of what went down? Right, so... So it really wasn't that big of a surprise, but I think for more casual observers, you know, after the CMA shut the whole thing down, the EU came around saying like, oh, actually these concessions, we're good with us. We're happy with the concessions that they're making. And now we're going to just greenlight it because we believe that that is pro-competitive. This Mm -hmm. is a, a positive thing for the market. And what were the specific concessions? 
basically providing parity to other services and making it so that people can play their games on different distribution channels, which was the anxiety for the CMA and continues to be the anxiety for the FTC that somehow people that are not somehow pay Microsoft won't be able to access Call of Duty. Uh, and the longer term perspective on cloud gaming as a technology, the EU didn't lean on that as much. They, they didn't try to tend to know the future. And the CMA, you could argue that they did. And so now we have this interesting situation of having two, what I consider, let's say that are equally measured, equally weighted antitrust authorities, and, you know, the EU versus the UK, arriving at wildly different conclusions, right? And it doesn't really matter where I sit with this. It's just sort of interesting to see how you now have two watchdogs disagreeing with each other. And they both have made statements to the effect of, well, we're, we're correct. It's, so it's a really interesting one, right? It's the, you know, there's a, in my naive understanding always, you think, well, the adult world out there, like, you know, of course, they're consistent and they know all and they have access to millions of documents and they talk to all these senior executives in private, behind closed doors, and they fly private jets to have these secret meetings and are somehow managed to disagree. So then, well, which one is it? Who's right now? Yeah, some of the takes I saw on Twitter were that the EU's position was that it was much softer about what the future of cloud gaming looked mm -hmm. like. Can you unpack some of what that means? The way that, I mean, the simplest way to, to put it is that the CMA looked at cloud gaming as a distinct market saying you have PC, console, mobile, and then XR and VR and that stuff. And then there's also the cloud infrastructure. And that cloud market is going to be a, a gradual replacement of the existing ones. And it's going to be a unique, distinct marketplace, meaning you could launch there, but not on other devices, right? So you could release a game on the cloud, but not on the console. You could release a game on the cloud and not on the mo on, on a mobile setting. But that's not the case, obviously, right? From a revenue perspective, from a distribution model, from just a practical formatting sense, cloud gaming is adjacent and very much connected to the existing ecosystem of other hardware technologies. And so... The EU found that because of that, there's actually, it's a lot more porous. It's a, mm -hmm. uh, an, an addition to rather than a replacement of the existing technologies out there, making it so that as long as Microsoft promises to not withhold content from everybody else, it's okay with it. Whereas the CMA says like, no, 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 no. See, it's a distinct market. There's this one revenue model. We've calculated that they already own 60 to 70% of the market through Game Pass, which is another conversation. But Therefore, having more content will make them even more difficult to compete against, and consequently, we're not having this. Now, there's more to it for if you're really into the technicalities. There was a, a hearing in the UK of the CMA's figureheads on like how are we framing antitrust regulation, not just with this case, but also for you know large tech firms and and the general push it to say Google and Meta and how they manage themselves. And there's a imperiousness that comes from those conversations like yeah well we believe that our framework is more bespoke that's how they refer to it you have I forget her name now sarah kendall i think it is her name yeah sarah cardell who basically said to the to the commission interviewing her look we in the uk have our model and it focuses more on a case-by-case company-by-company approach whereas the eu tends to be more blanketed and it's more volume or, you know, one size fits all. And so, it, which is a sort of British way of saying, we're, ours is better. 
And you wonder, you know, because like in their in their complaint, in their blocking, they said, well, you know, this proposed solution of Microsoft keeping its promises requires substantial or significant resources to to safeguard and monitor this. So we're not going to do that. Therefore, it's out of the question. Mm. Well, maybe, maybe that's kind of the problem. Like you create your own problem this way. So the EU doesn't see it that way. They think of cloud not as a as a distinct market in those same terms. They look at it and say, we can see a way around this. And as long as Microsoft adheres to these rules, this is actually better for everybody because now people will have access to Call of Duty titles because Activision is absolutely not releasing this on its own. It's going to rely on a, on a large platform holder to do so. So that's roughly the difference between them. Uh, but on the top line, it reads very differently, right? It's when, just to give you an indication, when the CMA initially narrowed the scope of its concerns, the share price for Activision shot up by like 12 bucks a share, right? And it's had been trading around 75. The selling price offered by Microsoft is 95 bucks a share. And it ended up in the middle when once the CMA said, okay, we're not as worried about Call of Duty anymore. But then when they eventually blocked it, it dropped back down <laughs> to that same level it had been before. Since the EU's announcement, it hasn't really moved. Oh, interesting. So it's very interesting to see. It's like, okay, so the CMA for all its, you know, bluster at the same time seems to carry weight with the investor market, which hmm. is an interesting observation there. So so we'll see how that plays out. There's still the FTC coming up. Well, yeah. What does it mean for this to play out? You've got these two key regulatory watchdogs coming to completely different opinions. Mm -hmm. Where does this leave Microsoft, right? Like, is it best two out of three? Like, who gets to make this decision about what's going on? Yeah, I, so I spoke with Microsoft earlier this week, and they were very happy, of course. They're like, this is great. This is the future, as as you'd expect them to say. And at the same time, you know, I asked them, I was like, okay, well, so how does this play out? And so there's Specifically, there's about 17 or so antitrust authorities that have to approve the deal. A bunch of them already have, like Brazil, Saudi Arabia, and a bunch of these countries. And then there is a, a another subset that has basically deliberately delayed its own ruling, waiting for the top three, which is EU, UK, and US. And so they need to have all of them on board effectively, or they need to make some, some fundamental changes. For the UK, what that's most likely to become is a separate entity, a separate sort of fencing around the UK market. And they can only provide certain content in that market if it's separate entities. And so you will have Activision UK and Microsoft UK, and they don't really interact inside the UK market, and they can only distribute content accordingly. You're going to have this awkward, inefficient model that's going to cost more and therefore also you know, be more expensive for consumers. A sort of video game Brexit, if you will. It's, it's, you know, this is consistent with the policy of a small self-isolating island right off the coast of <laughs> the Netherlands. That's right, the mighty Netherlands that can't quite deal with perhaps its decayed colonial legacy at That's, this point. Yeah, you know, I mean, the larger cultural context for me is perhaps somewhat infantile, but we just suffered through a week of this coronation ritual you're like really people is he wearing like a mink fur what is this the like, memes were good the memes know? were great but it's also like this is some outdated 17th century nonsense like yeah, come on let yeah. it go like there was so much so much good good coverage i saw on twitter of the 
colonial history of all of his gems, right? Mm -hmm. Like this one came from the bloodbath of this nation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, where has all of this stuff been robbed from? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of good critique of the premise of this entire kind of concept of the monarchy. But do you think the EU's decision is going to, do you think this is something the FTC is going to take into consideration? You know, how much do you think the kind of dueling rulings we have now, Mm. can't believe I got that out without stuttering, the U.S. a tiebreaker here? Right. That's, I thought about that too. So the U.S. is already on their way, right? And they've already expressed their, their gripes and they've already issued the lawsuit well before their own timeline, right? Which is at the time too, when we talked about it, like it's, that's, that's in some ways, of course, a, a way for the U.S. antitrust people to get in front of all this and not be the last one in line saying, I know that this is an American company being acquired by another American company. We need to have at least a headline or a byline in this conversation. We can't just be a quote somewhere halfway through. So the FTC has filed this lawsuit and detailed basically the four major complaints around the call of duty ownership and you know, whether or not it would allow for parity on different platforms. If Microsoft agrees to a consent decree and says, we're going to keep our promises and here's what we'll commit ourselves to. And there's some kind of whatever Damocles sword that hangs over them to, to keep them in line. The administrative judge is expected to say, okay, well then now there's no, there's no case. So we're going to throw it out. So it's not a tiebreaker in that the FTC now gets to decide what it's going to end up happening is that, you know, after the EU's approval, it's going in the right direction for Microsoft. The FTC is the U.S. is going to allow it under those stipulations. And so you're just going to have this one country that kind of has to go against the grain. And so I don't think the FTC will play a meaningful role in that sense. It will sort of validate what's already happening because that ball is already rolling. Like they did that so long ago. They haven't waited for it. And everybody else will follow suit, like countries like New Zealand and Australia. They'll say like, okay, we agree now. Let's Let's go from there. Do you think there's anything else we should be watching as this continues to unfold? The the larger question is about the market and, like, and the impact that this this particular transaction has on everything else, right? So you see this, and we can talk about earnings if there is room. This week's earnings really come down to everybody who has existing IP is doing well, right? Mm. Take two and, and 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 companies like it, they've performed well on earnings because they have strong intellectual property. Consolidation is, of course, the precursor to all that. Like you just hog all these cool franchises with the acquisition, with an acquisition of this size being approved, you end up very quickly going like, okay, we should buy more stuff, right? And anybody who has a bunch of capital will do so. So you see low valuations for European publishers like CD Projekt Red, for Ubisoft, Embracer is having a bit of a tough time this week. So these companies are very purchasable by larger companies. I expect that that we'll see more transactions in 2023 <laughs> to offset sort of the cooling climate and demand. At the same time, look, you know, they're very lowly valued, so we can we can actually afford all this now. And with this out of the way, or at least half approved, let's say, we're going to see more acquisitions. Some early predictions for 2024. Get ready. (laughs) One of the things that the EU declaration did was definitely move the conversation around Microsoft away from things like how games like Redfall haven't been performing as good as they thought they were. Have you played it? I have not played it yet. No, I've been busy playing Mass Effect and Valhalla. 
But, you know, there is one game right now that mm-hmm. seems to have silenced all other conversations about games, <laughs> at least on social media. And that is Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. As of today, Thursday, May 18th, that has sold more than 10 million copies in just three days. This makes it the fastest selling Zelda game thus far. What are we, what do we take, what are we, what are we taking away to note from this? Have you played it? I've, it's currently downloading in my office with my Switch. I'm flying to LA on Sunday, so I have a few hours to kill. On my way back from San Francisco, the guy next to me was playing Breath of the Wild oh, for five hours. That's a good, it's <laughs> a good way to spend your time. No, it's perfect. <laughs> So what the, what's the takeaway? So the the comparisons are ample, right? So you say, okay, what are some of the other major franchises for Nintendo? So you have Super Mario Kart, and that one has sold 55 million copies off the top of my head, 56. Okay, can it sell the same numbers? And so the expectation is, that, yeah, it's going to sell about 50 million units, which is a substantial amount. And it immediately reflects on Nintendo's ability to just push this out into great numbers. The company itself is undervalued. It's worth a lot more than it's currently being traded for. And so that's kind of the thing, right? It has an install base of 125 million switches as of March this year. If you have an attach rate of, say, 40 to 50% of that, so like that's 50 to 60 million units, like that's pretty good. Yeah. You know, so they'll, in like a bearish case, they'll sell like 35 million copies, but it will probably be closer to 50, 55. Which is over its lifetime. 40 to 45% of the installed base. I mean, that's a huge chunk of your hardware base playing one of your flagship franchise games. Right. And that's kind of where Nintendo excels, right? It's 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 really Mario and Zelda as the two main franchises. They tried, you know, Metroid is up there too, but it's not quite as success. Those are not quite as successful. The other one that I now am trying to remember is our Animal Crossing New Horizons. That one sold 42 million copies for its lifetime. The pandemic bump. The pandemic bump. So, you know, but if those numbers are any kind of indication, you know, in the US, they already sold 4 million copies of Tears of the Kingdom. So, you know, that's not likely to subside. Yeah. And it had that usual thing. I mean, I I look at the, the flagship story in New York. But also with some of my my friends throughout Europe, everywhere the smallest towns out there would have like lines of people waiting outside of their local video game store. That's still a thing, right? And so that kind of like what other title had that kind of anticipation? Yeah, this apparently is, you know, as for 2023, the biggest physical video game launch in the UK, which mm-hmm. I mean, we're only five months deep, but it seems like I'm, I'm hard pressed to imagine what's going to unseat that. Well, once Microsoft owns it. Activation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I didn't. Is there, is there no. any hope that's closing in 2023? It's 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 not likely in the UK. But, the, but so you have things like FIFA do well in the UK. Yeah. But that's sort of on the fritz now too, with oh, EA yeah. breaking its contract. And I was excited to see selling 50% more physical copies than Hogwarts Legacy, oh, right? So that one now, now we don't have to talk about Hogwarts oh, anymore. God. Thank God. Bump down. Down the drain. <laughs> it does seem Same. like Hogwarts maybe got a bit of a benefit from there was a bit of a vacuum and now it just seems like the the attention certainly from the outside seems like it's all focused on zelda mm-hmm. and this is a game that seems to be offering some really new elements compared to how kind of the let's say prior zelda games have gone there's this new crafting mechanic have you watched many of these clips or anything oh, on yes. youtube oh, or yes. twitter tiktok so i i think that this is the new thing so let's take a step back about like in-game crafting 
<laughs> of course, Minecraft has done this for a long time. There's been this like series of games that have really leaned on it. Now, uh, Fortnite seems, you know, that was the entire innovation on the Battle Royale. Right? Yep, it's Fortnite creative mode. Roblox, of course, that's all you do. They're professionalized that in some ways, but, but they allow you also to sell whatever items. But in, in Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom, you end up just kind of finding innovative ways to navigate the landscape, beat bosses, get into hard to get spaces, whatever. And so, you know, there is a off script component to these games that didn't exist before. It used to be much more linear, which I think Steven Johnson would refer to as telescoping, where you, mm. in order to get to the fourth thing, you have to do these other three things first. And so in many ways, like, you know, we have now deviated from a game mechanic that is more linear and much more regimented to one where you can kind of just free ball it and see how you end up and you kind of improvise. Well, these that's, are, that's pretty interesting. About yeah, it. yeah. There's a user-generated content component, right, that, that isn't well, just... Well, how would we call that? Then? Well, how would we label that? What do you mean? So, you know, user-generated content is historically, or I say this... I say this Classically. <laughs> I, want to, I want to tread carefully here sitting next to a historian. In the context of, say, Doom... Right, it was shareware, and it was yep. hey, here's the source code. Just give us credit, but you can make levels, and you can share them, and then whatever we we can go from there. So it would all be free, and then you see level editors coming out with major games during the '90s and the early 2000s. Yeah, do do it yourself modding, level editors, yeah. world map makers, whatever yeah, that kind of stuff, skin creation stuff like and that. It was always part of the mix, and then that sort of went away, and then it came back extra extra hard, right? And so now we have this moment of like, of course, Roblox. And Minecraft that you know put this back on the map for a lot of people, but now it becomes inherently part of the experience. But so is that user-generated content in the same way that like social media is? Yeah, I think I think maybe I'm defining content mentally for myself in a slightly different way, which is not that you are producing things that other people use, mm. but that you are producing content kind of like in the flattest and most consumable way, which is what this crafting mechanic does when combined with ways of recording your mm. gameplay footage is create these kind of instantly consumable endlessly creative channels of, of folks who can because you can solve these problems in so many different ways right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh one of the funniest takes i saw was someone who was basically like every challenge every puzzle here can be defeated with just a really 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 long bridge right that's <laughs> Just, like I've just yet to see a puzzle in, in Tears of the Kingdom that can't be solved with a long bridge. And so it allows for a kind of styles of player ingenuity to emerge, be captured, and then be put out into social media channels in a way that is producing consumable content, right? Rather than something that someone else uses. Like the game seems engineered for sharing. I think that's kind of what I mean. And that part of its stickiness and also its ability to, to create the buzz that it has by virtue of how much it has blown up on, you know, social media with all of these clips of people and doing their different, you know, their different ingenious crafting is really, it's made for a sharing economy. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. That is, that is, that sounds like a much better, that's a step in our direction. I totally agree. The, you know, I'm, I'm always dissatisfied by the fact that it's, you know, it's a spectrum, of course, and at one point, like you have to really speak in absolutes. But how do you distinguish the two? And I think in some cases, it's hey, look, it's a garden with some toys in it, right? And I, I'm, I'm the architect of this. I'm the landscaper here. 
and I put a sandbox in and a bunch of shovels and little buckets. And like, you know, you can make like a little sandcastle inside of this, this garden that I've created for you. And then there is a moment where you start to fundamentally tinker with, you know, the actual components, the materiality of a garden like that. He's like, yes, okay, gravity has yes. now changed because now we have yep. moon gravity. No, this is all still happening in engine, right? There's no, there's no reworking of the game mechanics. Right. Maybe what I, I'm just thinking all this out loud right here with you is that the crafting mechanic allows for a breadth of generative behavior. And it reminds me of similar thoughts I've had about what are the kinds of games that really thrive on something like Twitch, right? Yes, you can stream highly narrative games, right? But it seems like a lot of where streaming blows up is giving people a sandbox to play in where the same thing never happens twice, mm -hmm. right? And so this is your PUBG, right? This is your Fortnite, this is Roblox. A whole bunch of games that really hold the space up there at the top are these games that produce dynamic generative in-game behavior. Fall Guys, right? Games where there always seems like there's a surprise happening, mm -hmm. right? right? And that it's, I think some of, I think this crafting mechanic is really capturing that enthusiasm for letting the player kind of press out into the game space as much as they can. Mm -hmm. Is that a better argument? That's a much better argument. Okay. All right. We've workshopped it in this paper. I will. This paper shows... <laughs> That's the data. You know, rolling it back to Zelda, where we can make these things. It's interesting how there's a, a an aspect of this where it's it's purely customization, right? So I just want to have the experience of tinkering and tooling around, even if I do it in isolation. It doesn't have to be multiplayer. I don't necessarily want to share it. I just want to find the most hilarious way to, you know, knock over this high knocks, this this massive creature trying to eat me. And I you know, I, I find that, that that already exists with Breath of the Wild, where you would see people basically freezing like a tree trunk in time and then hammering it a bunch of times and then jumping on it right before it releases and then just use it to surf across the map in like rapid pace because most of the game is just walking around. And so you find these really creative ways to not have to deal with the materiality of the environment. I think that that's part of it, right? I think that there is a quote that sticks with me to this day from my dissertation research where... You know, in the context of modding, you'd have this group of people called modders, and they would have this tagline saying, he who, what is it, likes the game, plays the game, he who loves the game, mods the game. And it's sort of like a, a, a liminal thing for people. It's like, if you start to really dig around and root around in the, in the source code or start playing with the, the actual aspects of the game at that level, that is a different degree of involvement and engagement. Like, you're a bigger fan, you're more into the universe and so on. And I think that that's interesting from a business model perspective. Saying like, well, what what else can we do? Right, it extends the experience. At the same time, you know, they go design it. Like, how do you manage all that? Like, how do you build a reasonable revenue model? How do you make sure that, you know, you don't you already see it now on the internet, of course, with Zelda. In rapid time, did we check the box for time to penis? Which is a standard code. This is this is the content you can't get in his newsletter. No, I took it out because you know. There's parents out there. There is, you know, sort of a standing joke and it's consistent where if you allow people to make things inside of your game, very quickly will they find something that's phallic in nature. Yeah. How long till you get a dick? How that's, long? That's, How long that's, that's the Splatoon, you know, Animal Crossing, all of it. All, all of it, it, all of it. And it's just like, and it's, but it's, it, it speaks of course towards like, how do you regulate this environment in which you let people ostensibly play freely 
but only to a degree. It's like how, and, the, and that and that border is very fluid, and I think that that's a really interesting tension. So, what was Zelda's time to penis? It was it, it rivaled Spore. That's that's it's no, <laughs> it's you know, and Spore is like that was almost instantaneous. Yeah, because you have this, this character creation engine that's very extensive. So, so moments, it's like, it was literally just, and you know, but as weapons too. It wasn't just for show. It was like you had utility. So I'm I'm very impressed by the Zelda community. Uh, at the same time, you know, like a lot of these behaviors are very consistent and, yeah. and, and you could you could predict this, of course. What do you think that game developers should be taking away from the success of Tears of the Kingdom? Well, franchises work in this environment, right? <laughs> um, yeah, Jesus. Are you strictly talking about user-generated content or just the... Uh, just, so part of where this question comes out of is there was a kind of snarky tweet I liked from Jason Schreier earlier this week that he said you know what what video game executives will learn from tears of the kingdom games all need crafting now what they should learn from tears of the kingdom the importance of retaining your staff the graphical fidelity arms race is a waste of money and that games all need rockets right and so i i could kind of see his point right is part of what is going to come out of this is a bunch of suits clucking in a room being like well our game needs crafting right kind of misunderstanding all the other components that make a game like this great, right? And I, I also always kind of love these games that disprove the idea that we want this fluid, photorealistic, hyper-lived-in experience that often makes games so kind of buggy, cumbersome, long development cycles, things like that. Yeah, I have to agree with Jason. I, that all games need rockets? Starting with that one, I really like, you know, he buries the lead here, but it's a no, I, th- I think it's uh, the main thing with Nintendo is always that its success has never been dependent on its ability to provide the most sophisticated hardware. Yeah, and so you know this this mm-hmm. thirst for graphical prowess, or this is like these blistering spectacles. That's Xbox and Sony talking, right? That's not that's not the Nintendo game. Nintendo is also a toy maker, and I think for a lot of people, it was a kind of an experience to see, say, so many kids lean into Roblox because Roblox doesn't really look so nice. Roblox gets that. Yeah, you yeah. Know, Roblox gets... looks like absolutely janky shit. So did Minecraft before, right? You're in this mm-hmm. world, it's all made out of cubes. What are we doing, you well, know? You see Minecraft Dungeons, it's actually quite nice. It has like this nice atmospheric experience. So it's not as blocky and as shitty as it was. So it does have some polish over time, but it's accessible. And I say you can disassemble it. And at the same time, it doesn't really require the latest and greatest in terms of technology. So I agree with Jason on that. The rocket bit, you know, of course, they've blown things up. That's gonna that's the whole point of the game of <laughs> so many of these games. Whether that's like a fatality or just like rocket jump in like a doom or whatever. <laughs> and then retaining your staff, I think that that's the deepest one. Like, you know, like how you manage your team and how how you keep them happy. You know, artists I think over time become better if if you create that environment for them to do it in. I think a lot of times they split off and start their own studio because they couldn't realize a, a particular creative vision under the umbrella of a large corporation and that's where you lose people right and now that the tools are more accessible whether that's just you know like a unity engine or unreal engine or some kind of ai concoction you know it's there and people that have any kind of professional background in it they are now capable of creating fantastic experiences in a way that you know perhaps as large corporations can't get to because you're too cumbersome and too bureaucratic. So I think retaining staff and keeping them happy is a key piece here too. It wouldn't be a bad idea for other big game companies to learn something from Zelda given 
that apparently Zelda Breath of the Wild has been declared very efficiently the greatest game of all time. Do you know what I'm talking about, Yost? I know about the GQ lists. Yeah, the other great stain across the social media landscape last week and this week has been the GQ's list of the 100 greatest games of all time ranked by experts. We'll put that in quotes. So for anyone who missed it, last week, GQ, Gentleman's Quarterly, released an article called The 100 Greatest Video Games of All Time. And it is explicitly that. It's a it's a list of what have been voted on. We will get into how that determination was made. These kinds of lists are just gravy for time on website, right? You want engagement metrics? Do something like this, right? People will hang out and to read every single inch of it. I'm sure this was great for their click revenue. So what do you, so you already ruined the surprise of reveal number one. This is not how we you. Were gonna, we were going to read them all out loud in order. Yeah, we we're going to like, yeah, go down a list of a hundred. All right. So for like talk, talking about the process, like, so there's, who are these experts? Like, what do we make of these experts? Do we know these experts? Are they nice? Are they, are they good people? Are they good people? They asked a hundred grandmas. What do you think? No, <laughs> they asked 300 folks Dominantly in the game industry, it's largely industry employees, some kind of trade press journalists and folks like streamers. One of the big bylines was that they asked Ninja his, his you know, what he thought the greatest games of all time was, you know. Ninja? Yeah, I mean, I'll put a pin in whether I think Ninja is qualified to assess all games ever made in all time. But moving on from that statement... So they they cast a pretty broad net. The end of the article actually goes through and lists everyone who was queried, right? So you can you can look at the range. It's largely dominated by game developers. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they went to the community and asked the community for this list. The way that they did it was they asked each person to rank their top 10 greatest games. And then it was a weighted ranking. So whatever game you put as number one, that was given 10 points. Whatever game you listed as number 10, that was given one point. And then everything was added up, basically. It's almost like you're saying the game I list as number one is 10 times greater than the game I list as number 10, right? Mathematically, that's sort of a proposition here, right? It's like a curve. It's like a grading curve. Yes. And so that, you know, it's entirely possible that the you can have less votes for something, but as long as more people think it's the greatest, right? So that was how the the mathematics of it were compiled, right? All right. And so let's talk about all these people then, because from what I can tell, it's trade journalists and game makers. Yes. All right. I'm sure that they're nice people. I see some familiar names on here. There's some friends on here. There's some some friends and buddies. There's an academic, Holly Nelson. I know her. Okay. Follow her on Twitter. Okay. Well, there you go. Right in between probably monsters and ninja. Here's an, a side note anecdote where I think you can go totally wrong with this. The Apple Arcade was really the outgrowth of, you know, so Apple's desire to have its own mobile subscription service for cool games that it uniquely owned or it have some kind of like first party rights to came from the fact that they realized, of course, that the mobile gaming ecosystem was growing. They wanted to have a bigger piece of it. So they said, we're going to have a service, just like we have Apple TV and Apple Music and all that stuff. So they started Apple Arcade. A lot of, from what I understand, the people that greenlight and showcase particular games on the App Store at Apple 
are longstanding, you know, people that are game reviewers. So they asked them to help compile a cool list of a bunch of titles for the Apple Arcade. What you end up with with Apple Arcade is this art house, highbrow, <laughs> spectacular, like sophisticated, highbrow cultural thing, which I believe is not what most mobile gamers are looking for. Right? If there's billions of gamers out there, there's no way that they're all these highbrow people. But that's the, the, the those are the gatekeepers. So making a list like this with 300 people that are, you know, up to their eyeballs in the games industry working there that's where their livelihood comes from whether that's writing about games or making them you know it kind of has it gravitates towards elitism or like this regression to the mean they all are going to agree with each other so yeah i did a really quick control f on the article and academic is a description for only one of the people on this list and that is holly nielsen right so it was interesting to me not that i think academics are smarter people i think that is commonly untrue but that there are people who have spent their lives studying the history of games. There's people who've done that. There's people who are professional game historians. There's people who, and there's people who aren't in the academy who have also done that, right? Mm-hmm. And you see a real underrepresentation of that kind of expertise mm-hmm. in this list, right? Games researchers, games educators, game scholars. It, it, it would have been interesting to me, I think, to maybe have the list be more diversified in that regard, right? I was like, is Ian Bogus here? Oh, no, he's not here. Janet Mer. Oh, no. T.L. Taylor, we went looking for her. Not here. We saw Lee Alexander. Lee Alexander. So that gives weight. That's a friend. That's a... Well, she's... Indie. Indie. That's the mark there. Oh, that's... An in... <laughs> I thought Lee got out of gaming, but still has... I think opinion. still doing narrative writing. Narrative writing. And that's also why Metal Gear Solid is probably number seven in the list. We blame just, just, we blame you, Lee. That's your fault. Stop it. I think, you know, Kate Bailey at IGN had a great summary that I think speaks to some of this. As she tweeted last week, when greatest games lists are being made, too much weight tends to be given to console games, games made after 2000, and prestige story games. And maybe this is actually where we should talk a little about what the list is, because I think that that kind of really accurately defines what's on here, right? Let's go through the just the top 10. Just read them out, run them down. Run down to the top 10. On number 10, we have Half-Life 2. 2004. Dark Souls, number 20. 9, 2011. Portal 2, same year. Metal Gear Solid in 98. Mass Effect 2, Witcher 3 Wild Hunt, Bloodborne, Tetris, Last of Us, and then Breath of the Wild. Okay. And so, you know, really, basically all games made roughly in the past 25 years, with the exception of Tetris. Tetris is, I think, the oldest game represented on the list. There's nothing from a classic golden age. Tetris is barely in the kind of golden age of arcade era and was not dominantly first an arcade game. There's none of the kind of classic console games no nothing really game historical right tetris is as old as it gets and it's i think one of the only ones from from the 1980s that gets represented here but otherwise what you have are big splashy triple a games and then the 10 back from that counting backwards from 11 resident evil 4 disco elysium very very popular indie game ocarina of time super mario world surprised that didn't score higher Red Dead Redemption 2, Elder Scrolls, Final Fantasy 7, Mario 64, Doom, also one of the older games, and Elden Ring coming in at number 20. But definitely 
heavily weighted to console, heavily weighted to huge narrative story games. What else are you noting here? Yost? Why is Grand Theft Auto number 48? I mean, Jesus. well, okay. In which way are you offended by that? No Vice City? No by, San Andreas, right? Like fair enough, fair enough. I would, I would, I would probably put those a little bit above here. This one, but forty-eight. They don't even make it, right? Four 40, is on the list. Four. Ugh. Four's on the list. Four's on the it, deeper in the back, right? Okay, fine. So fine, I'll allow it. But the thing is, like at forty-eight, like I mean, with the immediate observation, if we just, I mean, we should talk about take two, perhaps, and the implication of Grand Theft Auto Six, but the fact that it's coming in at number 48 and it's one if not the largest video game franchise in the history of the games industry right and we talk about tetris all the time and we talk about super mario and all that shit and that's awesome but grand theft auto by popular choice by you know by sales revenue that one is really one of the biggest where's league of legends is it on here somewhere no no, what, so what, so like, this, this so this seems totally disconnected this, this, from actual gameplay. One of the points Cecilia D'Anastasio made on Twitter, ah. which was a remark on how few of the hundred greatest video games of all time are today's popular online multiplayer games. So you see no League of Legends, no Dota Two, no Rocket League, no Apex, and I think certainly imagining a list like this without Dota Two, right, and sort of just the cultural crucible of that game. Firewatch, don't even get me started. Fortnite number eighty one. That was all. Ninja just wrote it down from 10 to 1. Whatever. So, look, I get it. The one I'm angriest about is Fallout New Vegas. It should not be on the list. I think it just shouldn't be. Like, what are we doing, people? <laughs> really? Fallout 3, yes. Transformative game. Fallout New Vegas? Mm-hmm. Same fucking rapper. Like, is the plot really that remarkable? That That we felt that this needed to be here and lots of other stuff didn't? At the expense of everything else, this was chosen. The indie game I was most impressed by seeing make the list was Return of the Oberdin, which was a fantastic game. Yes. Uh, very brilliant. But I was surprised by that things like Firewatch would make it in when classic early stake indie games like Gone Home, right? If you want to, you know, what's the probably the most definitive walking simulator we have? Mm-hmm. It's Gone Home, right? There's also been a lot of attention that Competitive games don't make this list. You know, aside from The Sims, simulation games in general, underrepresented. I mean, yeah, Civ Five makes it in. There's Age no of Empires. Strategy, stra- strategy games, StarCraft, not in here. Anything from before the 1990s not made by Nintendo. I'm reading here from Kate Bailey's tweet. And I think that's absolutely right. We just forgot that there was an entire game industry that mm. had existed for 20 years prior to 1990 that wasn't Nintendo. And Mm -hmm. this, I think, is the list you get when you're dominantly asking people who I imagine are between the ages of 30 and 45, 50 is probably my guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, very similar. You're you're also asking journalists who probably cut their teeth beginning in the 2010s, maybe the aughts. Right. Like the I think this list coincides a lot with specific waves in game journalism as well. And the total lack of sports games and rhythm games. Oh, completely. like try to imagine hundreds greatest games of all time. Guitar Hero is not here. FIFA. FIFA. Madden. I don't play those. NBA Jam. They, they're super popular. Stardew Valley at number 49. I, I would say that I'd give that a thumbs up. You know, fine. it's sticky as hell. 
No, that's a good see. That one should be higher up. It should uh, be much higher yeah. than like whatever this Last of Us stuff. It's like, yeah, I get it. I mean, all of this is to say we're not mad at GQ for doing the list, but I think it for me, I look at this as something like a historical artifact, right? It tells us something about what we privilege, where weight is given. What is the general idea of what we think a great game is? And that was also a compelling part of this to me was that they just said great game, right? Great is an undefined term. How do we define that for ourselves? Mm -hmm. Everyone was left to define it for themselves. So it wasn't what games are the most, you know, impactful in terms of business. It wasn't the most historically impactful. It was just like, you figure out what great means, which I do sort of like as a premise, right? You you figure out what this means for you, but it does mean that there is, I would say, it's thick in the medium, and then it has, you know, moments of surprise, right? You know, where, where you get things that don't play to that. GoldenEye 007, The Sims 2. I'm just looking at some of the stuff here. I thought The Thief, The Dark Project, I was like, I'm so impressed. People still remember that game. Looking oh. Glass Studios. <laughs> I have two two final ideas, final thoughts. One of them is clearly my taste is very, very lowbrow. <laughs> because, you know, which leads me to the, the next, next obvious question. What's your top 10 or what would go in your... Yes, yes. You know, so grab bag of top 10 titles. I think that if I were going to define, I would have some of stuff that I do just think is like, you know, you know, some really stellar AAAs. But I suppose I think of great as what were games that culture defined beyond the norm of what we think games do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think Guitar Hero is on that so list. Not talking about how it changed your life. You not talking about, about the... it changed my life. I'm not even talking about it being necessarily monetarily successful, though many of them are. But it's like games that defined periods. Farmville. I know I'm going to get shit for this. It's not, is it a great game? No. Is it, did it define an entire culture of online engagement? Yes. Right? One of the, the tweets I sent out about this is my PSA reminder that Windows Solitaire has been played more than any game on this list. Mm-hmm. Undoubtedly. Windows Solitaire would absolutely be on my list. It's probably the most played game ever, historically, in the world. Mm-hmm. Right? And it tells us a lot about what we think a video game is. <laughs> right? Or its absence on a list like this. Right? Could I be a bit of a rogue and say something like Cookie Clicker as a... You're just very you know. busy, very big on Bogos today. Yeah, I'm not saying cow clicker, but, you, miss you know, <laughs> idle games as a genre. And also as things that defined cultures of online play and practice. You know, Angry Birds, right? Games that defined how we use a smartphone mm-hmm. as a as a play experience. I think my list would include games that if we're going to define a lot of those games as quote-unquote lowbrow, that my list would definitely include some of those. And I have to give a shout out to my friend and colleague, Patrick Lemieux, who his big shout out was, where's Dance Dance Revolution? Mm-hmm. How do we have a conversation about the greatest games of all time and not talk about DDR, right? Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. so it it, yeah, it definitely points us to what are we even thinking that games are about when we answer a question like this? Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. I mean, it's 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 hard for me not to override any kind of reasonable answer with "Here's how I feel about these." <laughs> you know, like I I got a lot out of Hades for yeah. all these reasons. Hades is on here. 
Hades is on here. Yeah, so so that one I'm excited to see. Yeah, I would probably have to put Hades. Hades is pretty hard to. That's you know, people will ask you like, what should I play? Fucking go play Hades. If you, I mean, you have played the Zelda games already. Go play that one. So that's one I like. Dead Cells. All right, so that's another one. That's like a, and that's I know a derivative of like the Castlevania strand, but that's a really good one. Let me ask you. So how would if you were confronted with how to define great? What would be your metrics or your your matrix? So I would, I would, that's why I'm tempted to override it emotionally. I would go towards games that have somehow perfected a particular type of gameplay, right? Or, 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 or came up with it. But so the, the thing like missing from this one is Max Payne, hmm. particularly. So the, the first two, I, I'm a little lukewarm about, but Max Payne three, but the music and just the vibe of that game and the character development also. The run really deep, and so I was I was a different person after I finished that game. I just like a, I matured or whatever in some way, and I get it. It's this brutish shooting game, and it's all. But there was something about that game that really changed something, and game mechanically it introduced bullet time, right? Which then became this standard thing, and so I would go to a title like that to say, here's a very rich story. At the same time, it offers a unique, innovative way of playing games that we haven't seen anywhere else. That is only afforded by the synthetic reality of video game like you can't do that really you can do slow-mo in cinematography but it's not the same thing as when you're when it's part of the game mechanics when it's really about aiming the target on the on the enemies or whatever so so that is an example of it i saw world of warcraft in here that's another one of those like it just yeah you know it took everquest and just made it perfect right you could say well it's shitty games yeah they they made it perfect by making warcraft has to be that would similarly so that's one those are two examples and then when it comes to the shooter games, I can think of a few. You know, I'm I know that Halo is not perfect, but it's so much fun for you know someone who's not really into Call of Duty. Call of Duty is, of course, the, the big one, but I would probably put something that's a little bit more modest, like a Halo on there. I don't see Halo on any Halo's right here. Oh, it's right there. Okay, Combat Evolved. This is a 2001 one. Is that the best one? I feel like I always glaze over when I when I see Halo. All right, so 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 that's on there. So so that's a third one I would pick. If we're in the shooter genre, I really liked this this one open source game called Urban Terror, hmm. which was a shooter game sort of in the same look and feel as like Counter-Strike back in the day. But you could double jump and wall jump and stuff like that. And so I had a little bit, it was a little bit more dynamic. That one was awesome. And it was also the, the community around it. Like you had these like people making stuff and building things. So when I see Overwatch, it's much more boring for me. Hmm. So So those are games that are much more defining. Which is not to say that the best ones, the most commercially successful, but I, I feel like they just hit an intersection and they just get a bunch of things right. That, you know, some of these other ones, like I get it, like Zelda, great game, but a large part of Zelda is just the same shit over and over again. <laughs> right? Like he just gets woken up every once in a while to fix a bunch of crap because somebody let Ganon out. You know, it started again this week. It's like so. It's just like what's what's new about Breath of the Wild? For like that's a that. Was the I, one that matures, that evolved. Yeah, and, I think this is my complaint about the appearance of something like Fallout New Vegas, where I'm just like nothing, yes. nothing advanced in this game. See, the Fallout you know? franchise was better. Like one, two, three, like the the like the, the isometric perspective ones. That's where you had me with like the vibe of like that 1950s, like you know, nuclear shelter thing or whatever it was. Like the music that would play in the back, and then you would just go around collecting all this equipment. Like that was very role play still. At the same time, it had you know it, was, it felt like combat, and it wasn't a shooter with a bunch of having to sit and listen to the, these shitty characters. Yeah, the three D version 
that's where they kind of lost me. I, I, I do think three is a is a triumph by and a lot of metrics given when it came out. Also, I was I enjoyed I, them. I, just to I, think of I was surprised that there was not a single Assassin's Creed on this list. I mean, I think Assassin's Creed on a franchise as a franchise has really been, you know, pulped. But you know, you go back to Assassin's Creed one or two. And they were doing something radically different. They felt like a revelation when you played them. They're just the the smoothness, the, you know, they defined an entire kind of mode of gameplay that had not yet been explored, right? And mm-hmm. and as much as I don't want to talk about Assassin's Creed Odyssey or something, I do think there's something very special about where we were in history with something like Assassin's Creed one, right? No, it's, 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 yeah. it's, 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 it totally worked. Like this totally got me going like, what? You're crazy. Let me read it six times. Which I think, find fault with everything. I think is absolutely the it's point of a perfect. list like this, right? It's, it's that it riles people up. It gets them talking. It gets them debating. And in that sense, I want to be very clear that I think the list is a total success. Wildly it successful. got, it got everybody. Well done. Well done. Cranky, happy, yelling, debating doing the thing we want people to do with games, which is arguing about what we think makes them great. Oh, absolutely. And it's also, I mean, look, almost 300 people contributed. So like they all took whatever, all of six minutes out of their schedule to email back like a top 10 list, which they, did they really spend an hour debating with themselves late at night over a glass of scotch or whatever? You know, yeah, I, I made a joke on Twitter that I was like, you know, if games academics wrote this list, it would be like three European point-to-click adventures, mm. several works of the Scandinavian demo scene, and whichever Final Fantasy nobody liked. You know, that mm. would be the academic range. Well, with that, I think we are ready for some pones and outs. Owned by that list. What's your own? What's my own? I'll tell you my own. My own is that New Zealand is allocating budgets. The government in New Zealand is allocating budgets and they are giving a 20% rebate to people in the games industry. They're the big, they're among the big winners of the new governmental budget, which is of course, you know, having a lot of cutbacks and so on. And that's because they want it to be more of an export product. And the big punchline in that is that the games industry in New Zealand is apparently now larger than its wool sector, <laughs> which I thought is a notable thing. It's like we go from sheep to games. That's fantastic. Good for you. Good on you, mate. Well, you don't need as much land, you know, to it's, make games. That's exactly what the Saudis are thinking. So, you know. Oh, Jesus. So that's a good, that's a, that's a well worthy. All right. Like a rebate? Like they're just getting a check? They, it's like a 20% cashback on game related purchases if like real estate. And the salaries and that kind of stuff. Okay, wild. Just like the wild. Canadians do. So my pwn comes from a cranky tweet I sent out that Yost, Yost told me I had to talk about. I keep getting these targeted Instagram ads for tender listeners, close your ears, but for these products that are, how would I describe them? It is a Kegel or pelvic floor exercise device on which you can play games. It's basically like a vibrator. You stick in your pussy (laughs) and you flex your vaginal walls to control a avatar. Yeah, And the example I get, so I get an ad that's like, play Flappy Bird with your vagina. And I'm like, what is going on? Like I, I also, you know, Instagram is the only social media site that has ever successfully sold me something. And they have sold me a lot of stuff. I get a fair amount of my clothes, housewares, whatever, bath mats. 
you know, shower curtains, shoes on Instagram. Mm. And so they have me dialed, right? And and somewhere in their algorithm, they're like, this is a person who has female reproductive parts and plays video games. Maybe they would like <laughs> this. And it, there's just something <laughs> so offensive to me that it's Flappy Bird. That's what it's I can't, so bad. I can't deal with. So is it like how does like is it more like a like a like you gyrate or do you is it like no, a, I mean, a pulsating you, thing? You squeeze. You squeeze. You squeeze. So why is it then only for women? Female. I mean, I bet you could do it with your you with your, your with your prostate. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't know quite how sensitive it is. If it's measuring, like, is it measuring different depths? I mean, listen. You know, pelvic floor super important. Kegel exercises, super important. There's a lot of wild stuff that you can like learn to do with that part of your body to enhance one your own physical health and your sexual pleasure. There's a, a lot to learn here on unboxing. You cover it all. But I, but it, it just it does just look like a kind of a, like a wavy rod. It's a sort of Internet of Things thing, and then there's just like you're looking at a smartphone with Flappy Bird on it. I'm like the guy who made Flappy Bird. This was not his dream, you know. Remember that guy? He just disappeared, right? He he made that game, and then he got so much shit for it on the internet. He basically had to disappear. Yeah, he's like fucking him out. Yeah, he was like, "This is Deuces. too much. I can't be responsible for this," you know. And, and they, they've being... they've skinned that open access game and just dumped it into a sex toy lateral let's say right it's it's but it also led me to think about like more hilarious versions of you know games with much more complex control you know where is getting over it with bennett foddy right you need four different but anyway i really this, appreciate that algorithm this, i think that's a real is but it, you can actually buy it if you should get one this is uh, if it's real this you know this has not been a paid promotion this has not been a sponsored phone no, don't get this so that's my phone of the week where are you off to where am i off to yeah with all this newfound freedom i'm i'm off to back to teaching next week Oh wow! I'm teaching summer session one, so that's how many days a week? That's twice a week for three hours, so it's basically a week of class in one day. Wow! So it's two full lectures. Yeah, I mean, you know, summer classes. How many people show up for this? Thirty-five are currently enrolled. You know, they better show up or else that class is hard to pass. Oh, but it's like pizza size, like you could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pizza size. You can buy pizza for the room. You could buy a, you know, it's a a dozen donuts, and if you split them in thirds, right? Mm -hmm, You can, mm -hmm. yeah. So I'll be in a, I won't be in an auditorium. I won't be getting applause. You know, the auditorium creates the conditions for applause. I think is, I think that's what it is, right? That's really what drags um, you, <laughs> keeps you up. That's right. That's so, so this, yeah. So I am definitely not leaving New York in the next six weeks because I'll be here teaching this summer session course, which should be pretty breezy. Mm -hmm. What about you? Oh, I'm, I'm off to LA on Sunday to do GameSpeed. I'm doing a fireside with, John Riccatello from the CEO for Unity that asked me to quiz the man on some stuff. So I'm reading up. Should be interesting. I, you know, I've known him for a while and he's one of those industry luminaries, like he's former CEO of EA, of course. He has a rich history of decisions that not everybody agreed with. So it's, it's, and it's interesting to kind of be, you know, shoulder to shoulder on stage with a person like this, of course. So we'll see. It's the Games Beat Summit in LA. It's usually pretty good. You know, it's only it's only one day for me, but it'd be nice to go out. Is this is this the end of our second season? We ha we haven't talked about that yet. We haven't discussed that. My grades aren't in, so technically no. Okay, okay. So I think we have one or two more. I think one or two more in the the season. I mean, I think we're doing a summer season. 
It looks but so. It does look, yeah. We're gonna we're gonna take you to summer school. But I'm just thinking about our listeners listening to us decide whether or not we're going, doing this podcast again <laughs> gonna, next week. Yeah. They're going to stay in New York to keep this season. Okay, so. Yeah, we'll talk about it. We're about to go have beers. So there's more we'll important start, things on the horizon. Beers. Yeah, we're going to take this to the lounge. And with that. Good night and good day. Good night.